For the last 10 weeks in our sermon series entitled Origins, we have journeyed through Genesis chapters 1 through 10. So far, we have considered God's creation of the world and everything in it. We have considered mankind's rebellion against God and the destruction that resulted. We have considered God's righteous response to man's wickedness in the great flood. We've also considered his preservation of Noah, his family, and the animals. We have considered the tribes, tongues, and nations that through Noah and his sons emerged after the flood. And now this morning, we will conclude our series in the book of Genesis so far. We're going to conclude this series by considering chapter 11. Now before I read chapter 11, take a peek with me at verse 1 of chapter 11 where it says this, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Hmm. Well, if you were here last week, we were told in chapter 10 verses 5 and 20 and 31 that there were multiple languages with multiple, well, in, in multiple nations. So we need to understand something here about chapters 10 and 11. They are not ordered chronologically. They are ordered thematically. Remember with me that in the Bible, genealogies such as chapter 10, they almost always serve as transitions. Genealogies close out one section of the biblical story and they introduce a new one. We saw this back in Genesis chapter five as that genealogy in Genesis chapter five bridged the gap between the fall and the flood. And the Genesis 10 theology that we read last week, it bridges the gap between the flood and the reemergence of mankind's corruption, which we will read about in a moment. Also, take a peek back with me at this, chapter 10, verse 25. We read this last week. This isn't, this isn't our passage this morning. But last week in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, we were told that born to the man Eber were two sons, Peleg and Joktan. Joktan's genealogy was listed in chapter 10, but remember what it says about Peleg, whose name, Peleg, means division. In his days, the earth was divided. Now, most biblical scholars agree that chapter 11 and the dispersion, the division that we are about to read that occurs at the Tower of Babel, that division happened in the days of Peleg, whose genealogy we're actually about to read in Genesis 11. In those days, though, there was one language, just as it says in chapter 11, verse 1, but the Tower of Babel dispersion is what caused the multiple nations and languages in chapter 10. Have you ever read a book or seen a movie where the beginning of the movie, it begins with a scene that ultimately is explained at the very end. That's kind of how Genesis chapter 10 and 11 works. So without further ado, I would invite you to follow along as I read Genesis 11. And Father, we ask and trust that you will bless and use this reading of your word in Jesus' name. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there, and they said to one another, come, 
Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building this city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashid two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashid 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpashid had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpashid lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ryu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Ryu lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Naor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Naor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Naor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Naor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Naor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan but when they came to Haran they settled there the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran the word of the Lord thanks be to God So at the Tower of Babel, man gathers together, God scatters them apart, and yet, as we've just read at the conclusion of Genesis chapter 11, and yet, hope is on the horizon. 
And so we'll consider that in three parts. If you're a note taker, here is my outline. Number one, man gathers. Number two, God scatters. And number three, hope on the horizon. Man gathers, God scatters, but there is hope on the horizon. Number one, man gathers. In verses one through four, Probably in the days of Peleg, the great, great, great grandson of Noah, everyone in the post-flood world was sticking close together. They all had the same language. They all migrated to the west together to settle in the land of Shinar. And then, as we've just read, they, they had an idea. Let's make some bricks. Let's stack them all up. Let's build ourselves a city and a gigantic tower as high as the heavens and let's do all this together in order to make a name for ourselves and to keep us together forever. Now understand with me that building a city, building a tower is not the primary problem here. It is mankind's motivation for doing so that is the problem. They want to elevate themselves as high as God and they want to make a name for themselves. They want fame and glory and instead of spreading out to fill and to cultivate the whole earth as God commanded them to do in chapter nine, verse one, they want to bunker down inside an impenetrable brick fortress. In other words, they desire a form of invincibility. Can't touch this. Can't disperse this. We're hunkering down. So the problem in Genesis 11 is not the Tower of Babel itself. The problem really can be rooted in this, that mankind wants equality with God. (laughs) Again. They want to ascend high enough to look God in the eye and they want to be master and commander of their own fate. See with me that only a few generations after the flood, mankind is immersed in the very unrighteousness that warranted the flood to begin with. Mankind is once again reaching for the high up forbidden fruit that Adam and Eve once reached for now step into some application with me the problem isn't having a savings account you know where I'm going with this the problem isn't building a business or composing music the problem isn't developing athletic skills or joining an association or working upwards within a company or even growing a healthy influential church the problem is having and doing those things in order to make a name for ourselves to revel in our own abilities and our self-sufficiency and essentially striving for invincibility my savings account is so fattened nothing's going to touch me Now, when I say it like that, I bet almost all of us bristle and we think to ourselves, goodness, I would never do such a thing. I would never have that sort of motivation. And yet, hold on with me, 
deep within the psyche of many 21st century American Christians, the song of Babel lives on to the tune of the American dream. I love America. This isn't a sermon that is uh, going against that. I love hard work. I love ingenuity. I love creativity. But speaking for myself, I do not love how sneaky my motivations can be, how deceitful my own heart can be, that in doing things in Jesus' name, I so often am doing things for my own name. I'll give you an absolute in-the-moment example, my sermons. When I preach a, uh, when I preach a stinky sermon, uh, which I don't have to hear any amens right now, I'm already... <laughs> When I, preach a, when I preach a stinky sermon, I'm pretty saddened, honest. I'm pretty saddened that I have somehow fumbled God's word. But if I'm really honest before you right now, full transparency and disclosure, I think when I preach a stinky sermon, I am more saddened that I miss an opportunity to impress you. and build a name for myself. Here's another example. Many of us have heard of or are listening to the journalistic podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Mars Hill was a church, emphasis on was. Planted in Seattle in the spring of 1996 by Mark Driscoll and two others. Mark Driscoll was a hero of mine. Mars Hill was founded on reformed evangelical theology, not unlike Oaks. By 2006, the growing Mars Hill Church expanded to a second location, and then by 2013, they were in 13 locations across Seattle, Portland, Southern California, and Albuquerque, New Mexico, with a weekly attendance of 13,000 in-person people, and then with online views of in the hundreds of thousands they were added to the list of top churches in America, top churches to watch in America. Now, similar to the Tower of Babel, there's nothing inherently problematic about building and growing a church. Nothing at all. But by 2014, according to many Mars Hill leaders, the explosive growth that they were experiencing had ignited this really insidious shift of motivation. By 2014, Mark Driscoll was unashamedly saying on record that he wanted to be the kind of pastor who gets invited to pray at presidential inaugurations. And then by his own admission, he wanted to have the largest church in America. He had his, and their leaders had their sights on, 50,000 weekly attenders. They wanted to have Mark Driscoll's books gracing the New York Times bestsellers list. In fact, the church paid $250,000 to make that happen. I don't say this to drag somebody's name through the mud. This is all public information. This is already widespread. What I say this for is somehow, between the years of 1996 and 2014, growing a church to the glory of God had somehow become grow growing a church to the glory of man. And here's what God did. In all of his sovereign power and mercy, he shut them down. 
he dispersed them like the citizens of, this, uh, of, of Babel. Uh, several of their multi-site locations became autonomous churches, which is for the better, but my point is, is that Marcel Church no longer exists. Now apply this with me. God forbid Oaks Church or Chris Lawson ever be motivated to build a name for ourselves. Amen. And... How about this? Let's go personally here. How about our own personal business ventures? How about the motive secretly underneath the accrual of a large savings? How about the motive behind our developing of our artistic skills or our athletic skills? I spent years as a musician Tricking myself into thinking, God, if you only gave me a big stage and lots of lights, I will glorify your name. (laughs) And the Lord shut that down. Hallelujah, what an act of mercy. God is still in the business of shutting us down when we are bent on exalting our own name just like he does at Babel. Point number two, God scatters. In verses five through nine, we are told that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that mankind was building. Now, this is yet another anthropomorphic description of God. Here's what I mean by that. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He fills all in all. He doesn't need to stoop down. Can he even stoop down, right? It's an anthropomorphic statement, but one commentator brilliantly explains it this way. No matter how high these people in all of their pomp towered in their vainglory. The Lord still had to descend because he is infinitely high and lifted up. I love that. His coming down to see the tower is also a way, catch the, 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 the personableness in this, it's also a way of describing his personal interest. Oh, what, what are you all doing down there? what a good father what a what a magnificently huge and holy father we have in verse 6 they are one people of one language with one arrogance and one rebellion and God determines in his wisdom that for Babel This was only the beginning of what these arrogant people would do. In verse seven, we see an ironic contrast to verse four. Look at verse four really quick. The people said to one another, come, let us build ourselves a city. Now verse seven, the triune God says, come, let us go down and confuse them and disperse them. You see the irony, there's satire in this. And in verses eight and nine, that's exactly what God does. He confuses and disperses them. Now there's a Bible commentator named Umberto Cazuto, and he comments on these verses as if he were writing a letter to the people of Babel explaining all of the ironic reversals that have just occurred. So I'm gonna read a long quote from Umberto Cazuto. None of this is mine, here we go. Dear, O children of Babylon, you called your city Babel because in your one language, Babel meant the gate of the gods. You desired that the top of your tower would reach heaven, 
but you didn't understand that you'd be no nearer to God than when you stand upon the ground. Nor did you comprehend that he who truly dwells in heaven, he'd have to come down to take a look at all of your lofty work. Your intention was to build yourselves a gigantic city that would contain all mankind in negligent rebellion towards God's will, which was to fill the whole earth. You were so proud of your power, but you should have known it is forbidden that man exalt himself, for only the Lord is truly exalted, and your pride and iniquity has resulted in your downfall and degradation, a punishment fitting the crime. Your dominion has been shattered and you have been scattered over the face of the whole earth. Behold, how fitting it is that the name that you gave to your own city, in your language, the word Babel expresses glory and pride, but in all of our other languages now, the idiom Babel sounds like confused madness. And your confused tongues have caused the dispersion of all your inhabitants in every direction. End quote. So see this and apply this with me. The citizens of Babel desired a glorious name. What they got was an inglorious name. The citizens of Babel desired to gather together in strength. God scattered them apart in weakness. I've desired things in my own life that are pompous and vain, and the Lord has squashed me down. Mars Hill desired to be the biggest, most influential church in America. God closed their doors, and now what is associated with the term Mars Hill is, oh, we don't want to be like that. Praise God for his mercy in this, by the way. Right? Um, it is infinitely better for us, for me as a Christian, I'll speak for myself personally, it is infinitely better that I be disintegrated and humiliated but spared from my idolatry. Because idolatry and the idolatrous church, the church masquerading as the church but ultimately worshiping itself, will one day be told by Christ himself, depart, you workers of lawlessness and vainglory, I never actually knew you. Save us, Lord. From Mars Hill, for one of your prideful pastors named Chris, for the Babylonians, for, for some of you, for all of you, I would say, our unfaithfulness to God does not have the last word. Glory, hallelujah. Point number three, despite all of this, there is hope on the horizon. Marvel with me at God's faithfulness to unfaithful mankind so far in the book of Genesis. I'll do a quick recap. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God in chapter three, God graciously promised a man, an offspring, a rescuer who would come to defeat Satan and undo the work of man's sin. 
After Adam's sin and Cain's murder of Abel, chapter five presented to us a genealogy trickling down to Noah through whom God would preserve mankind despite a worldwide flood to cleanse the earth of unrighteousness. And now, in chapter 11, verses 10 through 32, after the citizens of Babel have conspired together in vainglory and self-worship, we are presented with yet another genealogy. And in this genealogy, we catch a glimpse that God hasn't abandoned mankind, created in his image for his glory. From Noah's son Shem comes Arpashid, Shelah, Eber, from whose name comes the word Hebrew, Peleg, Reu, Serug, Naor, Terah. All of those names are probably not on the, the most popular name list right now in America, but then look at what we have, Abram, Naor, and Haran. If we were to keep reading the book of Genesis, we would see that through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God forges a people for himself, the people of Israel. And throughout the generations of Israel, despite repeated unfaithfulness and vainglory and idol worship, God graciously ensures the arrival of the righteous rescuer that he promised back in Genesis chapter three. Listen to the first genealogy of the New Testament in Matthew chapter one. Listen. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Hold on. And David was the father of Solomon by his wife, the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, father of Uzziah, father of Jotham, father of Ahaz, father of Hezekiah, father of Manasseh, father of Amos, father of Josiah, father of Jeconiah, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Babylon's gonna come back into view. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, father of Zerubbabel, the father of Eliakim, father of Azor, Zadak, Achim, Eliad, Eleazar, Matan, father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. The rescuer. The offspring that God promised to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3. The offspring whose heel would be bruised by Satan but whose three-day death at the cross would render an everlasting death blow to Satan's sin and death. This is what we repentantly celebrate at the Lord's table. We have all of us tasted the forbidden fruit of sin. We have all of us built towers to the glory of our own names. 
We have all of us accepted the serpent's invitation to take and to eat the sinful meal, but now, in acknowledgement of our sin and recognition of Christ our Savior, we accept his invitation to take and eat of a different meal, a redemptive one. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for men and women who have been cut to the heart by the good news of Christ. Men and women who are capable of self-examination and discernment. I'll give you some examples of questions to ask oneself when examining and and self-discerning. These aren't intended to be legalistic. There is nothing legalistic about gauging our hearts and obeying our God. Am I truly turning from my sin? Am I truly trusting in the name of Christ or am I building towers and trusting in my own name, Lord? In what areas of my life am I operating for the glory of my own name? Oh, Lord, lead me to repentance. Am I striving to obey your word, Lord? Am I stewarding my time, talent, and money for your glory? Am I contributing to the edification of this local body of Christ the way you have commanded me in your word? If you are capable of that kind of self-examination, then after I pray, I'd invite you to come forward to take the bread and the cup in a worthy, repentant manner. And as we do so together, remember the meal we are about to partake of is sensory. As you taste the bread in your mouth, Remember this, as real as that bread is in your mouth, so real is the fact that the Son of God became a man and gave up his body for you that you might have eternal life. As you taste the bitter sweetness of the juice, remember the sweetness of having your sins absolved, but it came at a very bitter cost to Jesus whose blood was poured out for you. Though Jesus Christ is God, he didn't come to earth to build himself a tower, did he? He came to earth in utter humility, becoming a servant to die the death that we American Babylonians deserve. The essence of sin, we've seen it since Genesis chapter three, the essence is that man substitutes himself for God and yet the essence of salvation is that God has substituted himself for man on the cross. You can't make this stuff up. And raising to life, the father has now highly exalted the name of Christ above every name and to that name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. Now I know I went on some tangents but that is Genesis chapters one through 11. While I pray I would invite those who are serving our communion elements to come forward. If you are not a believer, or I would add this, if you are not mature enough yet to engage in rich self-examination, I would invite you to hold off on the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Father, your word is wonderful. 
We could never tap out even Genesis chapters 1 through 11 if we spent the rest of our lives in this. Your word is infinitely deep. And yet, even the parts that we have comprehended this morning, Lord, they, your words are sharper than a two-edged sword. My heart has been cut anew, but I thank you for the balm and the healing of Jesus' blood. I pray, Lord, for a spirit of repentance as we gaze upon our lives and examine prayerfully, Lord, what are the towers that we are building? And we say that it's in your name, but, well, kind of secretly, I'm hoping that my name gets a little bit of glory. Show us where are, you, or where are we robbing you of something we could never truly even rob from you. But where are we, um, where are we consumed with and for our own glory? Show us. Be honored as we remember the death of your son. Be honored as we remember that he did not stay dead and that the meal we take is now in remembrance and declaration of that death because it is the atonement of our sin. You are wonderful, worthy, altogether deserving of praise, affection, attention, glory, and we want to give it to you starting in our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray and give thanks. Amen.